All right, hello, uh, Christ community. Glad all of you are here. <clears throat> Greetings to those watching uh, at our Traditions venue and those that are watching online around the world, which is really cool. So glad all of you are joining us. Before we jump in, a couple things earlier in the video. I just want to highlight this uh, Serve Day coming up. August 5th is the deadline to sign up. We need 100 more people uh, to do the projects that these schools have requested. We, we're, we're focusing on two schools that we have adopted as a church. These are our schools, Maplewood Elementary and uh, Jefferson across the street. So uh, please sign up. Our, our small group, some of our small group is doing this together. So you can do it as a group, as a family or whatever. You do need to sign up. And it's going to be a huge blessing to the students and the staff there. Just letting them know they matter. And we, our church, we love our community, we love our schools, and so I encourage you, you do need to sign up again by August 5th, so encourage you to do that. The other thing I want to mention, uh, congregational meeting this weekend, Sunday night, 6 o'clock, um, we've got a couple of uh, bylaw changes that our elders are, are bringing as a recommendation, and we're going to talk about, and also just give some updates on West Campus and things like that, so encourage you, that's um, Sunday at 6 o'clock. Uh, okay, we are in the midst of, we're in the middle of, not actually, we're near the end of, uh, sort of a series of messages um, through the book of Ephesians. And today we find ourselves in Ephesians 5, <clears throat> beginning in verse 21, where Paul talks about marriage, how following Jesus impacts our marriage. Now, can we all just acknowledge there's a lot of confusion and a lot of pain and a lot of disappointment and disillusionment related to the topic of marriage. 30 years ago, when I stood before God and witnesses and, um, and, and entered into marriage with my wife, Raylene, I had no idea what I was actually saying yes to, uh, right? I mean, I, I was saying all the right things in the vows, I promise to love you and put you before me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in my heart of hearts, I was really expecting Raylene to meet my needs and uh, was pretty clueless about her needs. Um, I'm the youngest child in my family. How many babies of the family do we have here? Okay, let's just own it, all right? We really like it when things revolve around us, okay? Can we just own that? We're babies, all right? Yay. Uh, so the first year of our marriage um, was not good, uh, pretty much because of me. Um, and so, I mean, it's just hard. Marriage is just hard. It's hard, it can be confusing, it can be disappointing, it can be hurtful, it can be empty, but it can also be life-giving and vibrant and transformative. So, so what is it that can put our marriage on the life-giving, transformative path rather than the destructive one? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, and, and I, I'm just going to share my heart. I just want to share my heart. Now, but, I mean, let me acknowledge here as we kind of enter into this, a couple things I want to just say right up front. I realize that a significant percentage of our church is not married, and that is great. By talking about marriage, I am not in any way implying that single is somehow less than. Being single is less than. It's not. Jesus was single. Paul was single. You know, that's some pretty good company there. And both talked about singleness as being valuable and fulfilling. So if you are single, I encourage you to hear this message through the lens of value. So many things we're going to be talking about apply to relationships in general. And so there's something here for all of us in this message. Now, if you are single and you're, you're wanting to be married, this message is very relevant for you. What we're going to talk about today is a crucial foundation for a healthy marriage. And so take good notes. And there may be others of you who, uh, for whom the whole topic of marriage brings uh, a sense of shame um, because you've been through a uh, failed marriage. 
a divorce or whatever. There is no shame here. Shame-free zone here, all right? There is no shame here. We, we can all learn no matter what our marital history has been. Um, and let me also acknowledge up front, this, this passage we're going to look at today, it has been misused and misapplied in some really harmful ways, especially toward women. There are a couple of words in this passage that have been used to devalue, to, to destroy, to denigrate, to control and abuse women. And I am so sorry about that. I am sorry about that because that is not God's heart. As we are, are going to see, that is not what this passage is teaching. God values women. Women, you are uniquely created in his image and you uniquely reflect his glory. God loves you and he celebrates you and he values you. So, so what I'd like to do, I want to read this entire passage and then unpack it. Now, if there are certain words in this passage that are painful or trigger words for you, I would encourage you, please, please, please listen to my entire message rather than assuming what I'm going to say. Okay. All right, here we go. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever, ever uh, uh, hated their own body, but they feed it and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Okay, everyone take a deep breath. All right, take a breath. All right. So one of the challenges to understanding a passage like this is in realizing that Paul was writing to a particular culture, a culture that was very different than our culture. So while many people today read Paul's words or they hear someone read Paul's words and they immediately accuse him of being oppressive to women, it actually was the opposite. Paul's words in that culture were radically life-giving and valuing to women, um, as we're going to see. Because here's the deal. In the Greco-Roman culture of that day, women were viewed as property. Men literally had legal jurisdiction over their wives. They owned them. So what Paul is saying here, in terms of how men are to treat their wives was a shocking, absolutely shocking, radical idea in that culture. 
So as we're, as we're going to draw out principles from this passage to apply to our culture, we need to do so with an awareness of their culture, the culture in which these words were originally written. And when we do that, we discover a couple of very significant and life-changing principles regarding marriage. So let me highlight two of these, all right? Two of these. Principle number one, marriage is not an ultimate thing. Marriage is not an ultimate thing. One of the things that is so interesting about this passage is how Paul, he is trying to talk about marriage, right? He's trying to talk about marriage, but he keeps getting pulled away from that to talk about a bigger story. Did you notice this? So as he's addressing husbands, he starts talking about Christ as an example, and he starts talking about all the things that Christ has done for us, the church, making us holy and cleansing us and presenting us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. And then, oh, yeah, 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 I got to get back on track. So he gets back on track, and he starts talking about marriage, and he quotes from Genesis 2, 24, which is the foundational verse, talking about how two become one. But then right after that, he says these words. This is a profound mystery, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul is trying so hard to talk about marriage, but he can't help but get caught up in the larger story of what marriage points to. From a biblical perspective, marriage is not an ultimate thing. It is not an eternal thing. So in Mark chapter 12, um, we read about some religious leaders who were trying to trip Jesus up. And so they asked this really bizarre question about a woman who marries seven brothers in order and each one dies. And so then she marries the next one in line. And so she marries seven of these guys. And, and then they're quite, this is hypothetical. And then their question was, so whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures very well. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. See, Jesus is saying that earthly marriage is temporal. We will not be married in heaven. Marriage is not an ultimate thing. It is a signpost. It is a wonderful reality that actually points to something else. See, the oneness that is the goal in marriage is actually pointing us to an ultimate oneness between us and Jesus. Now, here's what this means for us. God didn't create marriage to be this place for our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. If that is what we are looking for in marriage, we will be disappointed because no marriage relationship can fully satisfy the, the longings in our heart. God created marriage to be a part of a much larger story. See, marriage is just a taste of what our heart ultimately longs for, union with God. Even, even the most intimate, personal, powerful experience of the connectedness in marriage, sexual oneness, it's an amazing thing. But within a few minutes after we're back to kids crying and work calling and we're fighting over something. I mean, Hollywood wants to make us believe that sex is this constant, soul-satisfying, multiple times a day experience, but it's not. It's not. The oneness of marriage described in Genesis 2, sexual, emotional, relational oneness, that oneness is simply a taste of something much better, something ultimate and eternal. 
a oneness with God. A oneness with God. But here, here's the problem with the human heart, right? We, we often take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. The Bible has a word for that. It calls it idolatry. That's idolatry. We typically think of idolatry in terms of, you know, often for us, greed or money or whatever. But we, we can also make an idol out of our marriage. We can make an idol out of marriage. When, when we look to our marriage, when we look to our spouse for ultimate happiness and joy, we're making an idol out of it. Because as I shared earlier about my own experience, you know, so many of us, we go into marriage with this usually unspoken um, expectation that this person is going to complete me. This person is going to meet all my needs. They're going to make all my dreams come true. And sometimes the wedding vows even that people use, they actually sort of foster this. I, I promise to meet all your needs and fulfill all your desires. I promise to make you happy. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. No, 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 don't make that promise. You can't keep that promise. Do not make that promise. These are not promises you can fulfill. You are not to be a substitute for God in your marriage. Nor are you to look to your spouse to be that substitute. <clears throat> Over time, this will become a recipe for disaster. It will become a recipe for disaster. Hurt, disappointment, disillusionment, blame shifting, anger, resentment. So what happens is we either end up in this tug of war for power or one of just gives up and ends up withdrawing. We just end up, or both, we just end up withdrawing. And yet because that idol is still in place, we start looking elsewhere for satisfaction. Romance novels, pornography, another relationship. See, if you make marriage an ultimate thing, this thing that completes you and makes you fulfilled and whole, you will never be satisfied. You will never be content. Because you're looking to your spouse to be God in your life, and they can't be that. Now, I'm not saying God wants us miserable um, in marriage. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that. Marriage can be a joy-filled, wonderful thing, but only when Christ is at the center in the way we're talking about here. Our struggles and disappointments in marriage, which we all have, our struggles and disappointments in marriage are reminders that our ultimate longing is not in our marriage. Our ultimate longing is for union with Jesus. So when our marriage disappoints us, we can let those unmet longings point us to Jesus, whose love for us is perfect. And when our marriage experiences moments of amazing connection, we can be reminded that this is just a small taste of what is yet to come. This was good, but that's going to be amazing. And for those now, who, those who are right now who are single and you long to be married, I encourage you, keep pressing into Jesus in this single season. Keep pressing into Jesus and growing in your experience of union with him because that's the love your heart is ultimately longing for. That's the love your heart is ultimately longing for. And should you one day get married, it is your union with Jesus that will be eternal. 
It's your union with Jesus that will be eternal. Okay, that's first principle. Marriage is not an ultimate thing. That's why Paul just keeps get pulling, gets, he's talking about marriage, but he keeps getting pulled into this larger story because he knows that's the big story. That's the ultimate thing. And marriage is just a signpost pointing to that. <clears throat> Second principle we see in this passage. Marriage is to be a mutual submission competition. Marriage <clears throat> is to be a mutual submission competition. I borrowed that phrase from Andy Stanley. So good. Uh, but I want to attribute that to him. Okay. So here, what, what so often happens when people approach this passage in Ephesians 5 is that they focus on two words, submit and head. And usually it's the men who are focusing on these two words, these two words right? See, the Bible says, you're supposed to submit to me. I'm the head. I'm the one in charge. I get to tell you what to do. My heart, ugh, my heart breaks over the ways I have seen men use these two words in Ephesians to control, to demean, to devalue their wife. I have seen husbands who control their wife's spending by keeping all the credit cards and cash. She has to ask for money like a 13-year-old. She has no access to financial accounts. I've talked with husbands who use this verse to try and force certain sexual expectations on their wife. I've heard, I've heard men talk about giving orders to their wife like I would give orders to my dogs at home. It is heartbreaking. It is infuriating when I see it. And many times, this is what makes me so... Uh, the men, many times the men who are doing this are Bible guys. They're spiritually mature, right? They know their Bible. They can quote scripture. It makes me want to puke because they have so missed the heart of this passage. You know what the heart of this passage is? This is going to be so clear to all of us here. It's so clear grammatically in the Greek. It is so clear. The heart of this passage is verse 21. It's verse 21. The first verse in this passage. No one ever, or very few people kind of talk much about verse 21, but it lays the foundation for the entire passage. Let's read this verse together. Verse 21. Here we go. We're reading this together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, from Paul's perspective, this submission thing is to be a part of all of our relationships. It is to be a part of all of our relationships. Because of what Christ has done for us by submitting to the will of the Father and going to the cross for our benefit, because of all of that, we are to submit to one another. Now, this word submit, it means to voluntarily, voluntarily yield to. It's not about being forced. It is to voluntarily yield to, to defer, to put the needs of someone else above our own. This is what love looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what every Christ follower is to do in their relationships. Verse 21, every Christ follower is to do this in their relationships. We are called to mutual submission in all of our relationships. Now, this command in verse 20, 21, to submit to each other, that command doesn't stop 
in marriage. So we can't read verse 22 without the foundation of verse 21. In fact, these two, you can check this out in the original language, these two verses are grammatically linked. The word submit is technically not even found in verse 22. Here's what the original language reads. Here's what it reads in verse 21 and 22. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. Paul doesn't even repeat the word submit in verse 22 because it is so tied in to verse 21. See, in other words, here's what Paul is saying in verse 21, 22. Here's what he's saying. Hey, as Christ followers, you are to live your life focusing on the needs and the good of everyone around you, putting their needs before your own. So wives, make sure that's your attitude in your marriage. That's what he's saying. (laughs) That's what he's saying. It would make no sense to have it any other way. Hey, hey everyone, submit, submit, right? Submit around you, to submit to everyone around you because of what Christ has done. But in your marriage, don't worry about that. Don't, don't worry about following Jesus in your marriage. No, 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 no. Ignore your spouse's needs. I'm just talking about your, all these other relationships, but not in your marriage. That would make no sense. See, what, what I want us to understand is that what Paul asks women to do in marriage is the same thing he asks all of us to do in our relationships. It's just way harder in our marriage because we know this person so well. We see their faults. We've been hurt by them. It's hard to submit in a marriage because of these things, right? We're living with this person and all that. It's really hard to submit. And and so what's fascinating at the end of this passage, Paul changes his wording when talking about how wives are to treat their husbands. It's like he anticipated the struggle. So he says this, verse 33, and the wife must respect her husband. See, Paul understood that at the core of a man's um, soul, really, is this need, this desire to be respected. But respect is not something that can be demanded. I command you to respect me. You know, good luck with that. Uh, good luck with that. You lose all respect when you say that. You can't demand respect. Paul isn't commanding men to demand respect. He is commanding women to give respect to their husband. This means giving affirmation, expressing appreciation, seeing the good and calling it out. I mean, I love it when Raylene says to me, you're such a good dad. I know I'm not, you know, um, and, but, but, but I, I know I, I'm not always a good dad. But, but to hear her see the good in me and to call it out when I do do something okay, you know, to, to have her see the good in me and to call it out, that is so powerful. It's so powerful. A friend of mine shared about how recently he, uh, his wife's car battery died and and, uh, and, and, and uh, she needed to get around, and, and so he, he got up early in the morning, he changed the battery out, um, and was late, you know, had to go into work late because of that. And he shared how meaningful it was when she said, thank you. Thank you for doing that. You're the best. Thank you for doing that. Man, I know you had to be late to work. I'm sorry about that. I just, I really appreciate you doing that for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a car today. See, it's like pouring in to your spouse. You see the good, the good things, and you call them out. 
You affirm them. You appreciate them. This is part of what submission looks like for a woman in a marriage. It is to respect and affirm and express appreciation to her husband. Be his biggest fan. Be his biggest cheerleader. But I know this, this, you're think, some of you are thinking this. What if he's not living in a way that earns my respect? <laughs> what, what if he's not living in a way that really earns my respect? Now, there are no easy answers here. And just a side note, guys, you know, we really ought to try to live in a way that actually you know, is respectful. Um, but, but that's sort of another message. But, but there's no easy answer if a woman is saying, what do I do? He's, not, you know, he's just not living in a way that earns my respect. No easy answer here. But I will say this. Remember the purpose of marriage. It is not to make us happy. It's not the purpose of marriage to make us happy. It is an opportunity to point us toward our ultimate love and longing, Jesus. So I would encourage you to, in that situation, lean into Jesus. Ask Jesus to help you see the ways you intentionally or unintentionally disrespect your husband. Um, And ask Jesus to see things in him that you can affirm and you can appreciate in your husband and you choose to do that. You may be surprised. You may be surprised at the atmosphere, the impact that shift has. You just make that decision. That shift has on your husband's heart posture towards you. Sometimes just one person shifting can change the whole atmosphere of the relationship because maybe he's been feeling disrespected and he's just responding out of that. It's just a vicious cycle. If you want to explore this further, um, I know a number of people who have been helped by a guy named Emerson Egrich's um, book, uh, Love and Respect. He has videos as well. Um, in fact, his videos, I just found out, are on our Right Now Media, which is sort of our, a Christian Netflix. All of you as a part of Christ community have access to this. Thousands of videos on there. Um, if you want more information, you can, you can um, call the church office or whatever. But on Right Now Media, Emerson Egrich has love and respect. He has these videos. And so if that's a resource you want to check out just for further ideas, it's for both husband and wife. Um, I'll just mention that as a resource. See, submission is hard for all of us. It's hard for all of us, but it's the way of the cross. We're following Jesus. We're not following another person. If we were following someone else, maybe they'd have a different way. But the way of the cross is submission. And it's hard. Following Jesus is not easy. Now, please hear me. This is really, really important. I am not saying, wives, you must submit to whatever your husband tells you to do, even if it robs you of dignity and self-worth or it makes you feel dirty or uncomfortable. No, that's abuse. That's abuse. If you are in a destructive marriage where this dynamic is happening, please call the church um, and let us try and help you. Okay, so Paul begins, as we just read, by addressing what submission looks like for women. So verse 21, submit to everyone. Oh, wives, submit to your husbands. So he begins there. And then he shifts gears to show what mutual submission looks like for men. Now, what's really instructive to note, I think, is that Paul spends three times as much time addressing husbands. Um, Because as I mentioned before, and there's there's a reason he does this, what, what he tells husbands was a radically different way of living than their culture. It could not be more radical what he's telling them to do because women, again, as I mentioned before, they were property. They were just property. They were just they were a little more than slaves. So Paul says, hey, husbands, your turn. Here's how verse 21, here's how mutual submission applies to you. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife 
as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Okay, now there's a great deal of disagreement regarding what this word head means. Some people argue from scriptures that, that it means leader. Other people argue from scriptures that it means source or origin. But here's the deal. I'm not going to go there because instead of arguing about what this word means, how about we just look at the passage and we see how Paul defines what headship looks like. Let's just look at the passage. All right, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. What does headship look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Paul says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. You know this word love, this word love in the Greek, the word agape. Sound familiar for some of us? The word agape, right? That's what he says. That's the word he uses. It is a self-giving. It is a self-sacrifice love. It is a love that lays down our desires, our agenda, our control for the sake of our wife, to nurture and care for her. That's what Paul is describing here. That's what it looks like to be head in your marriage, to be head in a marriage. It looks like sacrificial love that cares for and puts the needs of our wife before our own needs. So it baffles me, it baffles me how men can read this whole passage and they come away with this idea that headship means I'm the one who makes the final decisions. Where is that in the passage? Where is that in the passage? Nowhere. This passage is not about decision-making authority. It's not. It's about agape love. If you are loving your wife the way this is describing, decision-making is going to take care of itself. I've been married for 30 years, and I have never used the final decision card. I've never played the final decision card. We pray. We talk we come to a decision together. And again, that's not what this passage is about anyway. This passage is not talking about who makes the final decision. Can we just put that to rest? <laughs> you know, because it seems like that's always what this ends up talking about. Well, who makes it? it just drives me nuts. It, it, let's just put it to rest because it's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is calling us as husbands to love our wives like Jesus. To love our wives like Jesus. Guys, our primary job as head is to find out how to love your wife, what makes her feel loved and valued, and then give your all to make that happen. Give your all, all of your effort to that. That's what headship looks like. According to, I mean, Paul just tells us here. If you want to know what it looks like, just look at what it says. Now, ladies, can I have a word with you? Uh, okay, uh, sometimes... Sometimes you bring to your marriage your own expectations of what headship should look like. How you expect your husband to lead devotions with your kids before breakfast, 
and that he is the one who should initiate any kind of spiritual conversation or prayer time or devotional or have the talk with the kids or whatever. Can I just say, that is a huge weight you are putting on your husband. Often it is overwhelming for most of us men and we just immediately feel like a huge failure. Could I make a suggestion? What if in this dynamic of mutual submission, you both sat down and said, how can we, how can we make Jesus more the center of our family? How can we do that? And then you celebrated and acknowledged each other's giftedness in that discovery, what you're good at and what I'm good at. You figured it out together. Maybe you are much better at praying out loud than your husband. Maybe he hates to pray out loud. You're much better at praying out loud, but he is much better at getting everyone to church on time. Uh, or, or maybe he doesn't like finding devotionals on the internet or whatever, but he loves taking each child out for a date, you know, individually out for a date once a week or whatever, and just hear how they're doing and pray for them. See, you, you, you figure it out together. You, you figure it out together, and you affirm what each other are good at rather than bringing in this expectation of spiritual leadership looks like this. But God has wired this, so let's just kind of work together. I don't, I don't see anything. Maybe you can, you can correct me later. I don't see anything in what I just described that violates what Paul describes here in this passage. I don't see anything in what I just described that violates what Paul is saying here. In fact, I think it demonstrates it. Wives, respect, honor, Affirm your husbands. And husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Go after, in other words, go after this mutual submission competition with all your being, with all your energy, and you will find yourselves on a pathway toward a healthy, life-giving marriage. I mean, do you see the genius of God's design? Really, do you see the genius of God's design? When two self-absorbed people come together in order to get their own needs met, disaster usually results. But whenever two self-absorbed people come together leaning on Jesus in order to focus on the needs of their spouse, you have a powerful display of a much bigger story. A God who reversed the curse of our sinful self-absorption by submitting his will, laying down his life, and demonstrating love in order for us to find our ultimate longings to be satisfied in him. That's his plan. With Jesus at the center. It's an amazing, it's genius but it points to a much larger story. The, the one that we, that our hearts ultimately long for. Let's pray. So in a message like this, the tendency is to be thinking, boy, I hope my spouse is listening. Um, you know, I hope elbows start working, you know, ribs get sore. You know, folks, if you're doing that, you completely missed the point. Seriously. If you're still there, go listen to this message again. Because it's not about that. 
If each of you are focused on hoping the other person is hearing this, you are back at the exact same spot. How can this person meet my expectations? So let's go before the Lord with an open heart and just see what he wants to say to us. And as we go into this, I just want to share a picture that I had as I was praying through the sanctuary earlier today, just praying for you all, praying for this time. And I, I, I saw in, in my mind, I saw like sort of a marriage where, two, you know, divided just two people just kind of at odds. And then I saw like a huge cross just kind of come down. And I, I know the cross is all about love, but this was forceful. Like right in the center, this huge cross right in the center. And I, I felt like the Lord was just saying, the cross, that's what this is about. That's what marriage is about. That's what this is all about. It's about the cross being at the center. And it's big. It's huge. And I believe that's what God is inviting us into. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. And what is he saying to you as you look at the cross where Christ laid down his life? So we're just going to ask the Lord. I don't, I'm not going to try to apply this in different ways. But we're just going to ask the Lord and give you a, a few moments here. So Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in response to this message? Just in the quiet of your heart, ask the Lord that question. And just wait. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in response to this message? Jesus, what are you saying to me? Uh, oh, I wish my spouse did this, this, and that. Jesus, what are you saying to me? And so I want to I just pray into that, whatever the Lord is saying. I pray into that right now. And I pray, for those who are married here, I pray, Lord, that the cross would become larger and larger in each one of our hearts. And that we would stop looking to our spouse to meet needs that only you can meet. I pray that we would own what this passage is saying to us and that you would help every marriage in this mutual submission competition, Lord, and that you would get every marriage on a life-giving path. If they're not, I just pray, get them on a life-giving path. I pray grace for those who are here by themselves, their spouse is not here and doesn't attend church. I just pray for a grace to keep running to the cross and hearing from you and living out of that. Lord, you know every other situation here, singles, or those who are going through a divorce, you, just, you know every situation. And I, I just pray that you would speak to each heart, whatever our situation is, you would speak to us. 
from your word. And at the cross, again, that this is my prayer that we would remember we're following Jesus. We're not following the world, we're following Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, you would help us run to the cross and lean on you. Father, I want to pray as well. I just uh, just pray for those who are in abusive marriages and maybe they don't even realize it until now. I pray for healing and wholeness and truth-telling and and, um, reconciliation, protection, Lord, to get the help that they need. So, Lord, there's so many, so many scenarios represented here. You know all of them, and we just lift them to you, and we love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us the way this passage describes and the work you're doing in us to make us holy, to make us this radiant bride. Even though we don't deserve it, Lord, you are working in us, and we pray you continue that. Even in and especially in these hard relationships, you would keep forming us in to the image of your son. We love you, God.